Welcome to Sacramento Central Seventh-day Adventist Church, and thank you for joining us for Central Study Hour. Wherever you are and however you are tuning in, we are so glad you're here. Now, I'd like to know, has the Lord been faithful to you this week? Amen. Faithful enough to, to bring us together for another Central Study Hour, for another Holy Sabbath day. And our first hymn this morning is Great Is Thy Faithfulness. To sing our praises to him for being so faithful, uh, Linda and Rachel Dixon from Highland, California have requested us um, to sing this with them. Let's do the first and third verse of hymn 100, Great Is Thy Faithfulness. Our next song this morning is hymn 286. If the Lord is grateful, it's because we study his word and uh, live them in our lives. <clears throat> Wonderful words of life comes as a request from Eleni Cardosa uh, from Brasilia, Brazil, and Laura Zuluaga in Bogota, Colombia. We'll sing the first and third verse of hymn 286.
have a special request, please visit us at our website at saccentral.org. Click on the contact us link. Be sure to tell us where you're from um, and choose any song that is in the hymnal and we'll be singing them with you in the coming Sabbaths. Our last song this morning comes from our topical um, index uh, that is the Holy Spirit. We'll be singing hymn 265, Breathe on Me, Breath of God, the first, second, third, and fourth verse. Heavenly Father, this morning we ask for you to breathe on us, your Holy Spirit, that it may dwell within us and that we can live holy and with your fire in eternity. Um, we ask, Lord, this morning that you also breathe on Pastor Chris as he brings us the lesson study in Jeremiah. Um, we pray that you will open to us new things and that we will uh, continue to study day in and day out until we truly understand your word. We thank you, of course, for your holy Sabbath day, and we thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our lesson study will be brought to us this morning by Pastor Chris Buttery, our senior pastor at Sac Central Church. morning and happy Sabbath. Good to see you this morning and uh, those that are joining us, we're glad that you are tuning in as well. Uh, glad that you are doing so. Uh, we want to make sure that uh, 
You don't forget to call in for your special offer, uh, as we do each week. It's either a CD or DVD presenta- uh, of this presentation that you can have for yourself or you can share with somebody else. And uh, it's offer number C21541, C21541. And you just need to call 916-457-6511 or email us at csh at Central. .org, and we'll be happy to get that out to you. Uh, also, just to keep in mind that uh, these presentations are also on our website, and uh, you can access the study notes that the presenters are, uh, are teaching from, and you can also download the actual Sabbath school lesson uh, right there on the same site, so saccentral.org, and just click on the CSH banner, and it'll take you to right where you need to go. So we're trying to make this as easy for you as possible. And um, we're just looking forward to getting it right into our next study. Uh, It's lesson number two in the book of Jeremiah. And uh, so we'd like to invite you to turn turn in your Bibles uh, to the book of Jeremiah. And we're in lesson number two. So if you have your study guide with you, let's let's open that as well. And let's take a look at, uh, at today's lesson. Did you enjoy reviewing the lesson this week? Yeah, the prophetic calling of Jeremiah was last week. We talked about uh, Jeremiah. We talked about who he is or was, um, how God called him. And then uh, today, we're going to talk a little bit about the condition of Israel, or at least Judah, the, uh, that portion of Israel that Jeremiah was sent to to prophesy, prophesy to, and to essentially warn about the incoming, uh, oncoming and impending conflict and uh, crisis. And that's the uh, title of the lesson, isn't it? The crisis within and where and without. Within and without. And we're looking at our memory text here, and it's taken from Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 3. And the Bible says, Israel was holiness to the Lord. God had separated Israel to Himself for a holy purpose. The first fruits of His increase... And all that devour him will offend, disaster will come upon them, says the Lord. Now, this is a very, very interesting Bible passage, because as we get into today's lesson, as we study more the book of Jeremiah, we come to find out that this assurance wasn't always there for Israel. This seems to be more of a conditional assurance based upon Israel's obedience to God and to His will, you see. And um, it's very, a very interesting story, a very sad story. Uh, as a matter of fact, we're dealing with a prophet who was, who was sad himself often because of the iniquity and sins of, of uh, God's people and uh, the messages, the warning messages he had to bear. Crisis, what is a crisis? Well, the dictionary defines crisis as a time of intense difficulty, danger, or trouble. That's that's a crisis, or a time when an important or difficult decision must be determined or must be made. Uh, of course, you'll hear the word crisis uh, used in reference to many different things, right? Uh, our economy, or at least, yeah, I guess we could say our economy. If we, we look over to Europe and we think about Greece, we think about the economic or the financial crisis over there. Um, we think of the energy crisis, or here in Northern California, the water crisis. Uh, We have fire. And then, of course, thinking about what's happening over there in Eastern Europe and Syria, you have the migrants or refugee crisis. Uh, You have 
Some refer to uh, lack of support for our veterans as a crisis. There is women crisis. And not that women create crisis, you understand, that's not the idea. But um, there are women who are in critical crisis situation, situations. There is uh, marriage crises, uh, emotional crisis, and then some people are suffering from identity crisis. And the list could go on and on and on. Uh, crisis management, you've heard of that term, crisis management is the process by which a business or other organization deals with a sudden emergency situation. And in moments like that, it's good to have a plan. And so they'll tell you there's about seven steps. You've got to have a plan. Number one, number two, identify a spokesperson, someone who can speak on behalf of the company. Be open and honest. Keep employees informed. Communicate with customers and suppliers. Update early and often. And don't forget social media. Okay, let folk know what's going on. So when we talk about crisis, there are many different crises, but the, the worst type of crisis a person can face is a spiritual crisis. A spiritual crisis. You can know the extent of a crisis by observing what it takes to get out of that crisis. When you consider the human race, you consider planet Earth, our condition and the effort made to get us out of this mess. And what was the effort heaven made to get us out of this mess? Sending Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to come here on this, to this planet to live as a man, to suffer and die the cruel death on the cross. And of course, he didn't stay in the tomb, did he? He rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and there he intercedes for us, promising that he's coming back to take us home soon. Great lengths heaven went to to rescue us from our condition, which, which speaks to the, uh, the severity of the crisis humanity and planet Earth are facing. The best word to describe our situation is crisis, surely. Now, the worst crisis a nation can face is also a spiritual crisis. God's people, at the time of Jeremiah the prophet, experienced a spiritual crisis, a crisis within which was of much more concern than the threats of approaching war, the external conflict. And it's important to realize as we're studying that the outside threats could have been dealt with successfully if the spiritual crisis within had been solved. That's, that's a very important principle to consider as we're going through today's, this week's lesson. Our external crises could have been more successfully solved if the internal crisis, the spiritual crisis had been solved. And uh, I would submit this morning that it's the same for us today, isn't it? Truly, yeah. Now, if we're at peace with God, and He has our hearts, we are in a much more favorable position to handle the external crises that come. As a matter of fact, when we, when we are in God's hand and He has our heart, we can know that we are going to be preserved and protected to a certain extent by Him. God isn't interested necessarily in spoiling His children. Sometimes negative things do happen, bad things do happen to good people, even to Christians. And, uh, and God allows those things to happen to test us and to try us and to refine our characters. However, However, He does care for His people, and that's something that we can certainly know. And if we are, if we are faithful to Him, then, and we invite Him into our lives, then we can know that He is near us and uh, know that whatever we go through, He'll be with us. It, it's, it's, it's come to Jesus before, it's come to us, hasn't it? And we can know that He's measured that and weighed that up to determine uh, to what extent uh, that thing that we go through uh, should be, um, should, uh, uh, should, come to us and, and how, it will, how it will affect us in certain ways. God's primary purpose, though, is to refine our characters and to allow, in the effort, 
to allow us to become more like Jesus, you see. When we're outside of God's will, then God backs off. God's a gentleman, and He, he, he doesn't ever impose Himself upon a person. He says, here's my will, this is what I desire you to do, here's what you can do to, to, uh, to allow my blessings to come to your life, but if you refuse those things, then I can't do anything more for you except plead, plead with you. I'm not going to interfere. If you're asking me not to be in your life, okay. Now, but if someone's praying for that person, if someone's praying for us, God is, God is free to work a little bit more in that person's life, you understand. Uh, it's amazing how this great controversy concept works, and we could talk more about it. But when we are outside of God's will and His plan for us, it's going to be difficult for us to expect that He's going to prevent certain things from happening because we live in enemy territory. Yes, this is our Father's world, but He's allowed the enemy to rule to a certain extent in this world today. Well, let's uh, go over to Sunday's lesson. Let's do a quick history uh, and kind of catch us up to Jeremiah's time. How's that sound? Let's, uh, let's go into it. Now, Jeremiah, he was a man called in his youth from the priest city of Anathoth. And, uh, and he became, as someone termed him, the heartbroken prophet with a heartbreaking message to the southern kingdom of Judah during the last 40 years of Judah's existence as a kingdom. And so Jeremiah came on the scene at the tail end of Judah's uh, existence, essentially. His messages of warning bathed in tears of compassion are recorded, recorded in the Bible, a book that bears his name. Now, it's a book, uh, it is a book, not, easily, not easy to, uh, to figure out uh, the chronology, uh, or, uh, or it can't, it's hard to figure it out topically. Uh, as someone suggested... Jeremiah, because he had a broken heart, it caused him to write a broken book. And so when you come to the book of Jeremiah, it's not all in sequence, it's not chronological, and so it's not always easy to figure out the chronology. And the reason this individual suggested is because he, was a broken, he had a broken heart, and therefore he wrote this broken uh, book. Yet the book contains appeals designed to reach the heart of God's people. He was the prophet of heart religion. He was the prophet of heart religion, as we'll see, uh, begin to see in today's lesson. Now, first, just a little bit of history. The beginning of Israel's woes essentially started, and, 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 I, and you can beg to differ, and that's fine, essentially about 800 years earlier, four, around 1400 BC, uh, when a new generation rose up after the death of Joshua that, according to Judges chapter 2, did not know the Lord. Keep your finger in Jeremiah. Let's go over to Judges, and I have someone reading for us Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Who's got that for us here this morning? Thanks, Diana. Diana's got that for us. We're in Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and uh, I have a question for you too, Diana, so uh, stay, stay, uh, stay tuned there. Judges chapter 2, we're going to come to you in just a quick moment. Um, Essentially, Joshua had led the children of Israel into the promised land, and um, Joshua eventually died. He was 110 when he passed away, and for a little while, the children of Israel seemed to do well, seemed to do well without um, that visible leader, except Caleb had stepped up to the plate and was helping for a, for a certain period of time. But after the death of Joshua, a new generation had arisen, and they didn't know the Lord, according to Judges 2.10. The later crisis of Jeremiah's time had been festering for centuries. And this shows us two very important things. Number one, the insidiousness of sin. 
Sin is gradual. The devil doesn't come to you and, uh, and, and just, just causes things to become unraveled generally quickly. He works bits and pieces at a time, causes you to crack the door open. Puts you, he puts a foot in the door and then before you know it, that door is fully open and a person is uh, living in open, flagrant sin. It happens gradually. Sin is insidious. And second, the second thing we can learn from this, being that this crisis uh, was festering for centuries, we can learn that God has tremendous mercy. He was patient with His people. He was, he was forbearing. He was persevering with His people. He didn't give up on them, and He used various means and methods to, to, uh, to bring them back to Him, you see. Um, he sent his prophets with messages of warning, just like Jeremiah, to, to coax them back, to help them realize that God loved them. He had a plan for them. And yet many times uh, they, they listened, but many times they turned back, didn't they? That's, what, that's kind of what the book of Judges is about. Dana, Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. It's kind of lengthy, but I know you're up for the challenge, so thanks so much. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgad to Bochum and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear, you shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. Then they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the, Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath, Hereth, in the mountains of Ephraim, in, on the north side of the Mount Gaish. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Good job. Thank you so much. So, Diane, uh, Diana, what caused the crisis, according to those verses? They didn't remove the enemies of God. Right, yeah. As a matter of fact, if you go to, if you go to chapter 1, verses 27 to 36, you'll notice there uh, a delineation of the lackluster efforts of the various tribes that did not completely drive out the inhabitants of Canaan, who became a continual snare, as was read, to the people of God. God's purpose was to displace and move out the enemies of God in Canaan. Uh, they had filled up, according to Genesis, filled up their cup of iniquity. And, uh, and so this was judgment. Israel coming in, removing them was judgment upon a very perverse, a very sick uh, people. And if you read a little bit about the history, we know about these people groups. Um, they, were, uh, they performed things that were extremely unsavory. Um, one thing that they did was that they sacrificed their children to their gods. And uh, without blinking an eyelid, 
This was a very perverse people, and God had used Israel to bring judgment upon them, you see, and to displace them. But according to the verse, verses read, what, what happened? They didn't do what? Didn't drive them out. God said, drive them out. As a matter of fact, He said, I'll go before you and I'll do it for you if you're faithful to me. And there'll be some effort involved and some cooperation, surely, but I will do this thing for you. And so, unfortunately, they decided not to drive them all out. They got a little lazy and uh, the people became a constant snare to the children of Israel because of their idolatrous practices. And uh, God's people often succumbed to their influence and unfortunately uh, became idol worshippers themselves. The Bible says actually that God suffered the heathen nations to stay, according to Judges 2 verses 21 to 23, to prove Israel he allowed them to stay to prove Israel, or in other words, to try them in the sense of bringing a trying experience that will awaken a person to their true condition. So God doesn't tempt anyone. He doesn't, he doesn't, bring, he doesn't bring temptation to a person to cause them to, uh, to be tried and to sin. He certainly, He will allow these things to happen, but He doesn't bring the temptation. So here God allowed the people to stay to prove God's people in the sense of trying a person, uh, going through a trying experience that will awaken a person to their true condition. God hoped that, that they would learn that apostasy from Him, distancing themselves from Him, does not pay. And certainly that's the case. What lessons can we learn about the danger of parlaying with sin or anything in our life that weakens our faith in God and our fidelity to Him? What lessons can we learn about the danger of parlaying with sin? The Israelites refused not to drive out the wicked inhabitants, and they were a constant snare to them. Is there something, is there something, is, there, is it important for us if we notice there is something in our lives that's not pleasing to God, to drive that thing out by the grace of God? Yeah. What, is, what did James say? Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and what will he do? He'll flee from you. Uh, draw nigh to God, and he'll draw nigh to you, you see. And so God invites us, by the grace of God, to drive the, that attitude, that sin, whatever it is in our life, out, because that thing will become a constant snare uh, to, to us. Uh, does the command, here's another question, does the command drive them out still have force for us today? Surely, yeah, even in the church. If there, is, if there is gross sin and an individual is holding on to that obstinately, the church works through certain loving uh, patient disciplinary measures so that the church of God can be preserved and the truth can uh, remain pure and that can continue to press on and move forward uh, so that others might be saved as well. There are things that we can learn from the experience of the Israelites. Here's another question. How does James chapter 2 verse 10 help us understand the danger of harboring sin? Do you remember what James 2 verse 10 says? If we keep the law in all points, yet are guilty in just one... We're, we're guilty of how much? Of all. The, you know, the Ten Commandments are not like ten pins. If, uh, if you roll a ball, bowling ball down, you knock over a few, a few remain. That's not how it works. The Ten Commandments are a whole. You knock down one, you knock down the entire lot you see. Um, James 2 encourages us, or at least teaches us, that we are only as strong in Jesus as our weakest link. We're as only as strong morally as is our weakest link. How important is it, therefore, to uh, chase that thing out of our lives by the grace of God? Let the Spirit of God drive that thing from our lives. One cherished sin can be and will be our downfall, just as pride transformed Lucifer into Satan. Must we drive sin out of our lives by the grace of God? With God's help, sure. 
or that sin will become a snare to us. And uh, we ought to uh, let God do that work in our lives. Now, now, continuing on with the story, God raised up judges after Joshua and the elders passed on in this new generation. By the way, how important is it for us as parents to pass on, uh, pass on the truth, the, the, the torch of truth, the baton of truth to the next generation? It's extremely important, isn't it? The next generation that came up after Joshua and the elders did not know the Lord. That speaks volumes to the, um, uh, the, the carelessness with which the, that generation had passed on the truths of God and His will to their children. Very important that the truth of God is perpetuated with a, uh, as parents hand on the baton to our children and their children's children, you see. But anyway, God raised up judges. You can read that in Judges 2 verse 16. But just one would deliver them from their just as one would deliver them from their oppressors, then they went back to their idol worship and the imitation of the nations around them. If you read the book of Judges, it's an up, it's like it's like um, watching a tennis match back and forward. They're doing well, and then they're not doing well. They're doing well, then they're not doing well. Back and forth, like a seesaw, you see. After the time of the judges. The nation entered a time of relative peace and prosperity under the rules of King Saul, David, and Solomon, which lasted about 100 years. After the death of Solomon, however, Israel was split into two factions, Israel to the north and Judah then to the south. So let's go to Monday's lesson and let's talk about the two kingdoms. We're still doing a little history. We're catching ourselves up uh, to the time of Jeremiah. We have to understand that what happened in Jeremiah's time didn't just happen overnight. This had been festering and brewing for years, constant pushing back on God's messages from the prophets, constantly pushing back on God's will and His way, and, uh, and then repenting and coming back to God, but not fully releasing the idols out of their lives, and then they fell again, and this back and forth. This thing continued on and on for centuries. And um, so we're over on Monday's lesson. Let's talk about the two kingdoms. Let's go over to First Kings chapter one and someone chapter eleven rather. Someone has First Kings eleven verses one through four. Okay, Nathan, fantastic. Thank you very much. We're going to come to you in just a moment. First Kings chapter eleven verses one through four in just a brief moment here. So the blame for the breakup of the nation of Israel really can be squarely placed on the shoulders of Solomon. Uh, who started out so well and trusted God and depending on His promises, but ended up drifting away from the Lord one small step at a time, because that's all it really takes, one small step at a time. Nathan, would you read for us First Kings 11 verses 1 through 4? Thanks. But King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites. Of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. And he had seven hundred wives, princesses, and three hundred concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David, his father. So Nathan, what led to the downfall of Solomon and, uh, and ultimately Israel? Well, as it states here, the foreign women and also, you could say, having more than one woman. Okay, yeah. And these women were foreigners, weren't they? These were, these were women who worshipped foreign gods, pagan, uh, pagan women. 
certainly. Uh, and these women influenced Solomon to the point that uh, uh, he served God with a divided heart, uh, which in turn heavily influenced the nation around him to stray from God as well. For if Solomon the king could allow idols into his home, then what would prevent the people from letting them into their house? The way of the nation, the way of the king goes the way of the, the nation. We've got to be very careful that the devil's insidious. He, he moves slowly, suggests certain things, gets us to doubt, uh, shakes our loyalty and fidelity to God and His Word and His truth. And before we know it, we could, be, we could be, have drifted far, far from the Lord, just like Solomon. Well, Solomon allowed these idols into his home and the way of the king went the way of the people. And um, certainly the enemy seeks to uh, lead us astray through many devices, apart from sensual pleasure. What are some of the other strategies the devil has up his sleeve? How does, does, how does practicing Exodus chapter 20 verses 3 and 4 help preserve us from falling prey to the devil's schemes? What does Exodus 20 verses 3 and 4 tell us? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything under the etc., etc., so the devil has many, many schemes, many tricks to try to deceive us and, and get us trapped, you see. And one of the things that he seeks to do, and that is to prop up certain cherished idols in our lives. And it doesn't have to be one made of gold or silver or, or wood. It could be anything. It could be your favorite uh, sports team. It could be a, a, a musician. We can idolize just about anything. As a matter of fact, in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 305, we're told whatever we cherish, this is very important, whatever we cherish that tends to lessen our love for God or to interfere with the service due to Him, of that do we make a God. It's, it's that simple. It's that simple. Let me read it again. Whatever we cherish that tends to lessen our love for God or to interfere with the service due to Him, of that do we make a God. And the, and, the, and the devil brings things into our lives, even things that aren't bad, that seem to take preeminence and cause us to, how does she put it, lessen our love for God and interfere with the service that, we, that, that is due to him. And these things we make uh, a God. It's very interesting. Now, Solomon uh, did repent, and he was sorry for the mistakes he'd made. He'd, uh, the damage was done, however, and then God declared that the kingdom was to be divided, but not before Solomon's death. Uh, Jeroboam, God, God, through a prophet, came to Jeroboam and told Jeroboam that uh, he was to rule the northern ten tribes and that Rehoboam, the uh, son of Solomon, uh, one of Solomon's vacillating sons because he was from, his mother was an Ammonite, um, a worshipper of the pagan gods, and so Solomon's son Rehoboam kind of was caught between the worship of the true God and the worship of the false gods. Um, he was to rule the southern the southern tribes, and there were just two of them, Judah and Benjamin. You can read that in First Kings chapter 11, verses 31 to 36. Now, after the death of Solomon, Rehoboam was coronated king and given the opportunity to bring relief to Israel, who had been heavily taxed during Solomon's reign. And uh, you remember the story, Rehoboam neglected or rejected the wise counsel of the elders and added to Israel's burden. And as a result, this uh, rash, and of course, the rash decision was irreversible. As a result, the kingdom was split. There was a coup. There was a rebellion. And um, uh, he was not successful in getting what he wanted. Uh, and uh, afterwards, Rehoboam seemed to fortify, for several years, seemed to fortify the cities of, of Judah, 
protect himself from the external uh, potential crises. And uh, you can read in Second Chronicles chapter 11, verses 16 and 17, that Rehoboam was not successful at this because of his own efforts, but because Judah had given themselves over to God's lordship. And the reason that happened is because a number of God-fearing individuals from the northern tribe left the northern tribe and came down into the southern kingdom and, uh, and, and thus brought with them their fidelity to God and their faithfulness to God and exerted a powerful influence in the southern kingdom, insomuch that uh, Rehoboam was successful, even though Rehoboam uh, ended up uh, not taking the full advantage of the opportunities God had given him and ended up rebelling against God, giving himself over to idolatry. Now, all the while, Jeroboam in the northern kingdom, uh, fearing that the people would go down to Jerusalem to worship and thus lose his influence with the people, he built two places of worship, counterfeit places of worship, one in Dan and one in Bethel. And, uh, and he didn't use the Levites as priests, but chose his own. The Bible says of lesser people or of lesser men, you see. And from this point on, Israel suffered a steady spiritual decline. These are the circumstances that bring us closer to Jeremiah's day. For 50 years, 50 years, within 50 years after the death of Solomon, the king became, that was Ahab at the time, the king became an idolater, their queen was a heathen, and their capital city boasted a temple to Baal. And so for over 200 years, Israel had sown the wind, and they were about to reap the whirlwind. So what happened? Well, in 722 BC, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, put an end to the nation of Israel. And what he did was he transported all its inhabitants to different parts of his kingdom. You can read that in 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. And effectually uh, causing Israel to disappear from history for a time, for a time. The southern kingdom was spared this humiliating end, at least for now. Some kings served God faithfully. If you read the history of Judah, some of them served God faithfully. But unfortunately, others slowly and gradually led Judah deeper into apostasy, therefore exposing them to the plans of the Babylonians. By the time Jeremiah came on the scene, Judah was close to being subjugated by this foreign power. God had sent Jeremiah to help them and avoid what seemed like the inevitable. So let's go over to Tuesday's lesson and let's take a look at the problem. Let's take a look at the issues. What happened? What brought about uh, the uh, subjugation of Judah to the Babylonian power? Jeremiah 2, let's read uh, verses 1 through 12. And uh, we're going to come to someone who's got Jeremiah 2.13. Who's got Jeremiah 2 verse 13? Oh, we're right over here. Dr. Ron, okay, we'll come to you in just a moment. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13, we're going to get there. Let's read Jeremiah 2 verses 1 through 13 first. Notice what, uh, what it says. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah, saying, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, uh, thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holiness to the Lord. This is our scripture reading. The first fruits of his increase, all that devour him will offend. Disaster will come upon them, says the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what injustice have your fathers found in me that they have gone far from me, have followed idols, have become idolaters, 
Neither did they say, where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and the shadow of death, through a land that no one crossed and there was no, and where no one dwelt. I brought you into a bountiful country to eat its fruit and its goodness. And when you entered, you defiled my land and you made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handle the Lord did not know me. And the rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that did, uh, do not profit. Therefore, I will yet, verse 9, therefore, I will yet bring charges against you, says the Lord, and against your children's children. I will bring charges for pass beyond the coasts of Cyprus and see, send a Kedar and, and uh, consider diligently and see if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory. For what does not profit? He astonished, be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. A lot of sad history lay behind the impending crisis that Jeremiah was to prophesy about. Israel's initial holiness to the Lord when he brought them out of Egypt was lost after God had brought them into Canaan, after which time the prophets prophesied the prophets of Baal. Now notice the reason why judgment was coming. Dr. Ron, could you read for us chapter 2, verse 13? Jeremiah 2, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Okay, thank you very much. So here God says two, two problems, two things. They, for, they forsook him, the fountain of living water, and they hewed themselves their own cisterns. Uh, Jeremiah uses a very interesting image to illustrate the twofold sins of Israel. Uh, archaeological excavations often encounter cisterns hewn into rock and they're covered inside with plaster. They were used to collect rainwater, like a rainwater storage tank or a, or a tank of some type. And uh, However, the water inside those tanks often became stagnant and the plaster inside the system would end up cracking so that all the water would run out. That's what was happening. The image demonstrates the contrast between true and substitute, as the author of the lesson puts it, surrogate, substitute religion, between God's provision of life and man-made imitations of the same. When we dig our own cisterns to preserve a different type of water from what God provides, it's an exercise of futility. It's doomed to fail from the very beginning, is it not? Surely. Israel embraced a surrogate religion by erecting images as a representation of God, by building rival temples to the one in Jerusalem and establishing a new priesthood outside the tribe of Levi. Judah, on the other hand, had embraced a surrogate religion by placing the, their confidence in their knowledge that they were following God's plan, which led to a formal, empty, loveless type of religion. Jesus, interestingly, uh, came to the woman at the well, and you can read the story in John chapter 4, verse 14. He says, look, if you drink of the water that I will give you, you will never thirst. The water that you drink from this well, it's, 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 you're going to be thirsty shortly thereafter. You can keep coming back and drinking, but the water that I will give you, it'll be a spring of water welling up inside of you unto everlasting life. See, God is the source of living water. You want to know the secret to, uh, to uh, eternal youth? Jesus. He, has the, uh, he is the fountain of living water and he continues to flow and bubble over that, that life-giving water to you and to me. What, did the Spirit of, what does the Spirit of God say in, in Revelation chapter 22? 
He that, he, that, uh, he that will hear me, let him come, let him drink of the water of life freely. It's a free gift. And the Holy Spirit is inviting each, each individual to drink of this living water. They're not hew, hew, hew out for themselves cisterns uh, for themselves, you see. We could talk here about theology for a minute and talk about righteousness by faith versus righteousness by works because essentially that's the issue here. God's people were depending upon their own works, their own version of what they believe to be truth versus God's method, His plan, and trusting Him by faith. Instead, they did their own thing, you see. In what way can we be embracing, this is a question for each one of us, in what way can we be embracing a substitute religion and forsaking Christ? Can we be placing our confidence in pastors and priests rather than going to Jesus, our true high priest? Surely, there is a church on earth that, uh, that is a substitute religion for the true. Instead of going to Jesus for the confession of sins, you go to a confessional. Instead of coming to Jesus, the bread of life and receiving uh, His cleansing blood, there is the transubstantiation where the priest talks over the wafer and the, and the wine and says, Horpus, corpus, meum, and all of a sudden that becomes actually the body and blood of Jesus, which, which doesn't happen. Uh, there, is a, there, are, there, are, there are religions that put tradition above the Word of God. These are ways in which we can substitute uh, true religion for a substitute or surrogate religion, you see. God presents His people, interestingly enough, as playing the prostitute. If you continue reading in Jeremiah chapter 2, uh, verse 20, He says that they were playing the prostitute. In other words, going after other gods, forsaking Him. Uh, he calls them a noble plant that had become degenerate because it is said it had come from an alien vine. That's verse 21. Uh, verse 22, he refers to his people as someone trying to clean themselves with soap but cannot get clean. And then in verse 20, uh, there's so much I could talk about with these things. They're, just, they're powerful illustrations. But he talks about his people as bring, bring dromedary or she-camels that break away from their owners. And then in verse 23, 24, female wild donkey that's in heat. Israel is essentially committing spiritual adultery and running after other gods to help her in a time of crisis. Who do we run to in our moments of crisis? What do we depend upon when we're facing an emergency? Do we trust God? Do we trust Jesus? Do we come to His Word and embrace His Word and let Him work out His will, His purposes for us? Do we trust Him? Let's go over to Wednesday's lesson. Got a few minutes to get through two days. Babylonian threat. Um, during the early days of Jeremiah's ministry, which was around the seven, early 7th century, uh, three great nations, Assyria, Egypt, and Babylon, were struggling for, suprem for supremacy. Under uh, Ashbanipal, Assyria had reached its peak and was in decline. Egypt had thrown off the Assyrian yoke and was seeking to regain its former dominance in that region with... Uh, with Nebuchadnezzar's rise to the throne of Babylon, the rise to the power gave rise to the power of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Uh, the fate of Assyria was eventually sealed with the fall of Nineveh, and the new Babylonian power became the dominant power. Now, under Necho II, Egypt challenged the sudden rise to power, Babylonian power. Nebuchadnezzar II, Nebuchadnezzar's son, successfully met the challenge in Carchemish in 605 BC, and Babylon replaced Assyria 
as the dominant world empire. That's what's going on right there. It was against this political backdrop that Jeremiah did his work and that Judah, was, Judah refused to heed the messages of the prophet. Judah was essentially caught between and was involved in these military battles. Judah became a vassal state of Babylon under one of those, uh, under one of the um, besieging of Jerusalem, Daniel and his three friends were taken by Nebuchadnezzar. At another time, Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel was taken. This is all around that time, you see. Judah was caught between these uh, battles. Judah became a vassal state of Babylon. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, could only stabilize his country by swearing allegiance to the Babylonian king. And next week's lesson, we'll talk about the five last kings of Judah. That's in next week's lesson. However, many didn't want to be loyal to Nebuchadnezzar. They wanted to fight and free themselves from oppression, although that wasn't what God intended. Go over with me to Jeremiah 27, verse 6. Notice these interesting words. Jeremiah 27, verse 6. Uh, it says, And now I have given all these lands, this is God speaking, I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and the beast of the field, I have also given him to serve him, you see. The sudden rise of Babylon had not taken God by surprise. Babylon was in God's hand as an instrument to bring, a, to bring about uh, certain disciplinary measures for God's people. God had hoped that in bringing Babylon to Judah and Judah being subjugated to Babylon, it would cause Judah to turn back to God. Jeremiah 25, verses 8 through 12. I had someone reading this, but I'm going to read this for us because, because of time. Let's go to verses 8 through 12. It says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my word, behold, I have sent, send, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, and a perpetual desolations. Verse 10. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstone, and the light of the lamp. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon. How many years? Seventy years. Then it will come to pass, when seventy years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. The people didn't listen to the prophets. So God said, I'm sending Babylon. You're going to be subjugated to them for 70 years, but then I'm going to punish them and you'll be freed. You'll be released to be able to go back to your people. God is good, isn't he? He tells them exactly what's going to happen and it happens exactly as he said it was going to happen. The question for us today is, do we listen to the prophets ourselves? Do we listen to the prophets, the inspired prophets? Do we listen to the inspired messenger of the Lord? How many times have we insisted on believing or doing something even though we've been given plenty of evidence that what we wanted to do or believe was absolutely wrong? Isn't that the uh, definition of insanity? Knowing that what you're doing is wrong and you insist on doing that thing? Surely, yeah. Let's go to Thursday. Swearing falsely, Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 1. Jeremiah 5 and verse 1 through 3. The Bible says, Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. See now and know and seek in her open places if you can find a man and if there is anyone who executes judgment who seeks the truth and I will pardon her. Though they say as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. O Lord, are not, o Lord, are not your eyes on the truth? 
You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them, but they have refused to receive corruption. They have made their faces harder than rock, and they have refused to return. When God asks somebody to run through the land of Judah to find someone who is honest and true, that's God's way of saying that it's going to be very difficult to find someone who's honest and true. Remind you of Abraham and God's interaction and discussion. I won't destroy Sodom if you can find 50 people in, in Sodom that are righteous, Abraham. And eventually that number was whittled down to 10. And still, Abraham couldn't find 10 people in Sodom that were righteous. This is how desperate and how terrible the situation was in the land of Judah. I want to read a couple of quick verses as we close. Someone has Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. We're going to come to you in just a moment. Swearing falsely. Here were folk who were saying they were following God and yet were doing contrary to His will. Leviticus 19, 12 says, And you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. To swear by God's name falsely is to, is to hold onto His name, to carry His name, and yet run after other gods. Do your own thing. It's interesting, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and 33, Jesus said, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him will I also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. How can we deny Jesus? How can we swear falsely, bear, bear false witness of our, of our service and our work for God? In Desire of Ages, page 357, we have these interesting words. The disciples might speak fluently on doctrines, they might rep repeat the words of Christ himself, but unless they possessed Christ-like meekness and love, they were not confessing him. A spirit contrary to the spirit of Christ would deny him. Whatever the profession, men may deny Christ, listen, by evil speaking, by foolish talking, by words that are untruthful or unkind. They may deny him by shunning life's burdens, by the pursuit of sinful pleasures. They may deny him by conforming to the world, by uncourteous behavior by the love of their own opinions, by justifying self, by cherishing doubt, borrowing trouble and dwelling in darkness. In all these things, they declare that Christ is not with them. Isn't that interesting? And then in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and 23, we have these words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have not as prophesies in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This is the most dangerous position a person can be in, thinking that they are saved and in a saving relationship with God, and yet fully lost. And so the warning is there for each one of us, isn't there? A warning for us to make sure that what we, what we preach, what we preach is what we practice. The warning is there for us to be faithful to God's Word and to understand at His very foundation, the law of God can help us, the law of God can help us uh, uh, be led astray by the various things that the devil's trying to pull us away to. The law of God's very clear. Here's the things I'm asking you to do and to not do. Follow me and all will be well. We need to be careful about not only knowing the truth, but practicing it, which is a sure safeguard against self deception. Well, our time is up and uh, it's been a great lesson. Uh, there's so much to talk about in this study. Jeremiah's message was to warn God's people. They didn't hear. They became subjugated to Babylon. God eventually freed them and released them. The lesson we can take away from this lesson is that God perseveres with his people.
God is gracious to his people, sends us warnings. And the question is, will we listen? The question is, will we heed? Will we follow God's will and his word? Will we take his word and do according to his word by his grace? God bless you. And thank you, those that have been joining us, uh, wherever you've been tuning in from. Don't forget to call in for the special offer. It's offer number C215. 41C21541. Just email csh at saccentral.org or call us at 916-457-6511 to ask for your free copy. Let us know if you want the CD or DVD version. We'll be happy to get that to you. We're so glad that you joined us. We look forward to seeing you next week.